Hello, listeners. If you are enjoying this podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, please consider supporting our effort. To contribute, go to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? When that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Listen, uh... Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man. One giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you are listening to episode number 385 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Copernicus, also known as OAO3, SAS2, Venera 8, Luna 20 and 21, and Explorer 49. We have six uncrewed spacecraft to cover on this episode, and then next episode, Skylab will begin. Okay, first let's cover the Orbiting Astronomical Observatory. The Orbiting Astronomical Observatory, also known as OAO, was a series of satellites. There were actually four, and they were American space observatories launched by NASA between 1966 and 1972. They were managed by NASA Chief of Astronomy, Nancy Grace Roman. These observatories, including the first successful space telescope, provided the first high-quality observation of many objects in ultraviolet light. Although two OAO missions were failures, the success of the other two increased awareness within the astronomical community of the benefits of a space-based observation and led to the instigation of the Hubble Space Telescope. The first OAO was launched using an Atlas Agena D from Launch Complex 12, Cape Canaveral, Florida on April 8, 1966, carrying instruments to detect ultraviolet, X-ray, and gamma-ray emissions. Before the instruments could be activated, a power failure resulted in the termination of the mission after only three days. The spacecraft was out of control so that the solar panels could not be deployed to recharge the batteries that would supply power to the electrical and electronic equipment on board. So that was a failure. OAO-2 was launched by an Atlas Centaur from Launch Complex 36 Cape Canaveral on December 7, 1968 and carried 11 ultraviolet telescopes. It observed successfully until January of 1973 and contributed to many significant astronomical discoveries, 
Among these were the discoveries that comets are surrounded by enormous halos of hydrogen several hundred thousand kilometers across, and observations of Nova which found that their ultraviolet brightness often increased during the decline in their optical brightness. Moving on to OAOB, it carried a 38-inch ultraviolet telescope and should have provided spectra of fainter objects than had previously been observed. The satellite was launched on November 30, 1970 with the largest space telescope ever launched, but never made it into orbit. Launched aboard an Atlas Centaur from Launch Complex 36 Cape Canaveral, the payload fairing did not separate properly during ascent and the excess weight of it prevented the Centaur stage from achieving orbital velocity. The Centaur and the OAO re-entered the atmosphere and broke up, destroying a $98.5 million project. The disaster was later traced to a flaw in a $100 explosive bolt that failed to fire. Which brings us to Copernicus, Orbiting Astronomical Observatory 3. Copernicus was a collaborative effort between the United States and the UK. The main experiment on board was the Princeton University Ultraviolet Telescope, but it also carried an X-ray astronomy experiment developed by the University College London slash Mullard Space Science Laboratory. Copernicus was launched with an Atlas Centaur from Launch Complex 36 Cape Canaveral, Florida on August 21, 1972 and proved to be the most successful of the OAO missions. After its launch, its name was officially changed from OAO-3 to Copernicus to mark the 500th anniversary of the birth of Nicholas Copernicus. Copernicus operated until February 1981 and returned high-resolution spectra of hundreds of stars along with extensive X-ray observations. Among the most significant discoveries made by Copernicus were the discovery of several long-period pulsars with rotational times of many minutes instead of the more typical seconds or less. Our next spacecraft is the Small Astronomy Satellite 2, or SAS-2. It's also referred to as SAS-B and Explorer 48. SAS-2 was the second in a series of small spacecraft designed to extend the astronomical studies in X-ray, gamma-ray, ultraviolet, visible, and infrared regions. The primary objective for SAS-2 was to measure the spatial and energy distribution of primary galactic and extragalactic gamma radiation with energies between 20 and 300 mega electron volts. The instrumentation consisted principally of a guard scintillation detector 
an upper and lower spark chamber, and a charged particle gamma-ray telescope. The telescope covered the energy range from 20 mega electron volts to 1 giga electron volts. The instrument was the work of Fitchell at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. An extensive calibration program was carried out on the gamma-ray telescope before SAS-2 was launched. The National Bureau of Standards Synchrotron Accelerator in Gaithersburg, Maryland was used to study the performance of the telescope in the 20 to 114 mega electron volt range. The performance between 200 and 1000 mega electron volts was studied at the Deutsche Elektronen Synchrotron Accelerator in Hamburg, West Germany. The orbiting spacecraft was in the shape of a cylinder, approximately 59 centimeters in diameter and 135 centimeters in length. Four solar panels were used to charge the 6 amp hour nickel cadmium battery and provide power to the spacecraft and telescope experiment. The spacecraft was spin stabilized and a magnetically torqued commandable control system was used to point the spin axis of the spacecraft to any position in space within approximately one degree. The experiment axis lay along the axis allowing the telescope to look at any selected region of the sky with its plus or minus 30 degree acceptance aperture. The nominal spin rate was 1 12th RPMs. Data was taken at 1000 bits per second and could be recorded on an onboard tape recorder and simultaneously transmitted in real time. The recorded data was transmitted once per orbit. This required approximately 5 minutes. SAS-2 was launched on November 15, 1972 from the San Marco platform off the coast of Malindi, Kenya by a Scout D carrier rocket into a nearly equatorial orbit with an inclination of 2 degrees. This was done to minimize the background flux from cosmic rays. Its apogee and perigee were 610 kilometers and 440 kilometers, respectively, with an orbital period of about 95 minutes. The telescope experiment was initially turned on November 20, 1972, and by November 27th of that year, the spacecraft became fully operational. With the exception of a slightly degraded star sensor, the spacecraft control section performed in an excellent manner. During the six months of the mission, 27 pointed observations, typically a week in duration, were made, resulting in about 55% of the sky being observed, including most of the galactic plane. It is generally acknowledged that SAS-2 provided the first detailed information about the gamma-ray sky and demonstrated the ultimate promise of gamma-ray astronomy. SAS-2 revealed the galactic plane gamma radiation was strongly correlated with galactic structural features, especially 
when the known strong discrete sources of gamma radiation were subtracted from the total observed radiation. The SAS-2 results clearly established a high energy greater than 35 mega electron volts component to the diffused celestial radiation. High energy gamma ray emissions was also seen from discrete sources such as the Crab and Vela pulsars. SAS-2 was also the first to detect Jaminka, a pulsar believed to be the remnant of a supernova that apparently exploded 300,000 years ago. On June 8, 1973, a failure of the spacecraft's low-voltage power supply ended SAS-2's mission. Now let's move on to our next spacecraft, Venera 8. Venera 8 was one of a pair of Soviet Venus atmospheric lander probes designed for the spring 1972 launch window. The other mission, Cosmos 482, failed to leave Earth orbit. The objectives were to make a more sophisticated set of scientific measurements at Venus's surface, including studies of the Venus regolith. The Venera 8 spacecraft comprised a bus and a lander probe. The lander probe was a spherical pressure vessel with a mass of 495 kilograms of similar design to the Venera 7 probe. Venera 8 had a top shell that would be jettisoned on the atmospheric entry to deploy the 2.5 square meter parachute and expose the instruments. The probe was battery powered. Its instrumentation included temperature, pressure, and light sensors, as well as an altimeter and an anemometer, a gamma ray spectrometer, a gas analyzer, and radio transmitters. The bus contained a cosmic ray detector, solar wind detector, and ultraviolet spectrometer. Venera 8 launched on the 27th of March, 1972. The spacecraft took 117 days to reach Venus, with one mid-course correction on April 6, 1972. Before reaching Venus, the probe's interior was cooled to minus 15 degrees C. Then, on July 22, 1972, it separated from the bus which contained the cosmic ray detector, solar wind detector, and ultraviolet spectrometer, and entered the atmosphere of Venus. Descent speed was reduced from 11 kilometers per second at entry to about 250 meters per second at 67 kilometers altitude by aerobraking. The parachute opened in reefed mode at an altitude of 60 kilometers and a refrigeration system was used to cool the interior components. Venera 8 transmitted data during the descent from instrument turn on at 50 kilometers and at 30 kilometers altitude the parachute was fully opened. A decrease in illumination was noted at 35 to 30 kilometers altitude and a wind speed of less than one kilometer per second was measured below 10 kilometers. 
Venera 8 landed at 10 degrees south, 335 degrees east, and 500 kilometers from the morning terminator on the day side in what is now called Vasilicia Regio. The lander continued to send back data for 63 minutes after landing before failing due to the harsh surface conditions. The probe confirmed the earlier data on the high Venus surface temperature and pressure returned by Venera 7, which was 470 degrees Celsius and 90 atmospheres of pressure. Venera 8 also measured the light level as being suitable for surface photography, finding it to be similar to the amount of light on Earth on an overcast day with roughly one kilometer visibility. Venera 8's photometer measurements showed for the first time that the Venusian clouds end at high altitude and the atmosphere was relatively clear from there down to the surface. The onboard gamma ray spectrometer measured the uranium-thorium-potassium ratio of the surface rock, indicating it was similar to alkali basalt. The first measurements of the surface regolith of Venus were returned and a profile of the cloud layer, including detection of sulfuric acid was made. The fourth spacecraft we are covering today is Luna 20. Luna 20 was the second of three successful Soviet lunar sample return missions. It was flown as part of the Luna program as a robotic competitor to the six successful Apollo lunar sample return missions. This was the eighth Soviet spacecraft launched with the intent of returning lunar soil to the Earth. It was evidently sent to complete the mission that Luna 18 had failed to accomplish. Luna 20 was based on the YE-8-5 spacecraft body, consisting of two attached stages, an ascent stage mounted on top of a descent stage. The lander stood 4 meters tall and had an unfueled landed mass of 1,880 kilograms. With a full load of fuel, its launch mass was between 5,600 and 5,750 kilograms. The descent stage was the same as the YE-8 lower stage for the Lunokhod rovers a cylindrical body with four protruding landing legs, fuel tanks, a landing radar altimeter, and a dual descent engine complex. The main descent rocket, the KTDU-417, was a throttleable 1920-kilogram thrust engine used for mid-course corrections, orbital insertions, braking for descent to the surface, and to slow the craft until it reached a cutoff point which was determined by the onboard computer based on altitude and velocity. After a cutoff, a bank of lower thrust, 210 to 350 kilogram veneer jets were used for the final landing. The descent stage also acted as a launch pad for the ascent stage. 
the spacecraft descent stage was equipped with a television camera, radiation and temperature monitors, telecommunications equipment, and a 90 centimeter extendable arm with a drilling rig for the collection of lunar soil samples. Communications were via a conical antenna at the end of a boom at 768 and 922 MHz downlink and 115 MHz uplink. The ascent stage was a smaller cylinder with a spherical top which replaced the Lanakhod rover and housing from the YE-8 bus. It carried a cylindrical hermetically sealed soil sample container inside a spherical re-entry capsule mounted on a 1920 kilogram thrust KRD-61 rocket. Total mass of the ascent stage was 520 kilograms of which 245 was the nitric acid and UDMH propellant. It was 2 meters tall. The sample return cabin was 50 centimeters in diameter and had a mass of 39 kilograms. The KRD-61 could only fire once for 53 seconds to put it on a free return trajectory to Earth. Specific impulse of the engine was 313 seconds. It could impart a velocity of 2600 to 2700 meters per second to the return craft. Luna 20 was launched using a Proton-K Block D carrier rocket we have covered in uh, episode 382. It was launched on February 14, 1972. The spacecraft was placed in an intermediate Earth parking orbit and from this orbit was sent toward the moon. After a four and a half day flight to the moon, which included a single mid-course correction on February 15th, Luna 20 entered lunar orbit on February 18, 1972. Initial orbit parameters were 100 by 100 kilometers at a 65 degree inclination. On February 21, 1972, three days later, the spacecraft fired its main engine for 267 seconds to begin descent to the lunar surface. A second firing further reduced velocity before Luna 20 set down safely on the moon on 21st of February 1972 at coordinates 3.7863 north and 56.6242 east only 1.8 kilometers from the crash site of Luna 18. In a mountainous area known as the Apollonius Highlands near the Sea of Fertility, 120 kilometers from where Luna 16 had impacted. While on the lunar surface, the panoramic television system was operated. Lunar samples were obtained by means of an extendable drilling apparatus. The ascent stage of Luna 20 was launched from the lunar surface on February 22, 1972, carrying 30 grams of collected lunar samples in a sealed capsule. The small spherical capsule eventually parachuted down safely 
on an island in the Karkinger River, 40 kilometers north of the town of Jezkaskin in Kazakhstan on February 25, 1972. The lunar samples were recovered the following day. The 30-gram soil sample differed from that collected by Luna 16 in that the majority, 50-60% of the rock particles in the newer sample were ancient lunar highlands, anorthosite, which consists largely of feldspar, rather than the basalt of the earlier one which contained about 1-2% of anorthosite. The American Apollo 16 mission returned similar highland material two months later. Like the Luna 16 soil, samples of the Luna 20 collection were shared with American and French scientists. A 0.4983 gram sample of material from a depth of 27 and 32 centimeters was sent to Britain as well. In March 2010, NASA reported that its Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter satellite had spotted Luna 20 on the lunar surface. On January 8, 1973, Luna 21 was launched with the Lunacod 2 rover on a proton rocket, aiming to land on the moon. The Soviet Union had launched the very successful Lunacod 1 rover to the moon in 1970, and that was the first remote-controlled robotic rover used in space exploration. Both rovers featured flip-open solar panels, a polonium radioisotope thermal generator to heat the rover through the very cold, long lunar nights, eight rover wheels, scientific instruments, and an array of television cameras. Each rover was carried on top of a platform with an extendable ramp that the rover would descend after reaching the surface. The platform was attached to the top of the lander unit, which was Luna 21. The proton launcher carried Luna 21 to orbit, after which the Block D stage transferred Luna 21 to the moon. Luna 21 then had fuel to capture into orbit and then land. The mass of Luna 21 in orbit was close to 6 tons, while its dry mass with the rover was about 1.8 tons. Lunacod 2 would set a record for distance traveled, 37 kilometers, until the Opportunity rover beat that record in 2014. After concluding its primary mission, it continued to have an interesting story, as it, along with Luna 21, were sold in 1993 to Richard Garriott, son of astronaut Owen Garriott. Richard Garriott was the developer of the Ultima games. He was a space tourist who went to the International Space Station on Soyuz TMA-13. While treaties prohibit countries from owning space property, nothing prohibits a private citizen from doing so, allowing for Garriott's claim not only to the lander and rover, but potentially to the land they surveyed. Lunacod 2's mirrors are still used to bounce lasers off of to gauge the distance to the moon, as with mirrors placed by the Apollo missions. In 2010, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter photographed the landing site. The white dot denotes the position of the lander, while the black arrow indicates the current position of the rover. The white arrows indicate the path taken by the rover on its journey all the way back in 1973. The goal of the Luna 21 mission was to land on the moon and deploy the second Soviet lunar rover. 
The primary objective of the mission was to collect images of the lunar surface, examine ambient light levels to determine the feasibility of astronomical observations from the moon, perform laser ranging experiments from Earth, observe solar x-rays, measure local magnetic fields, and study mechanical properties of the lunar surface material. The rover stood 135 centimeters high and had a mass of 840 kilograms. It was about 170 centimeters long and 160 centimeters wide and had eight wheels, each with an independent suspension, motor, and brake. The rover had two speeds, one kilometer per hour and two kilometers per hour. The Nakhod 2 was equipped with three TV cameras, one mounted high on the rover for navigation, which could return high-resolution images at different rates, 3.2, 5.7, 10.9, or 21.1 seconds per frame. These images were used by a five-man team of controllers on Earth who sent driving commands to the rover in real time. Power was supplied by a solar panel on the inside of a round hinge lid which covered the instrument bay which would charge the batteries when opened. A polonium-210 isotope heat source was used to keep the rover warm during the lunar nights. There were four panoramic cameras mounted on the rover. Scientific instruments included a soil mechanics tester, solar x-ray experiment, an astrophotometer to measure visible and ultraviolet light levels, a magnetometer deployed in front of the rover on the end of a 2.5 meter boom, a radiometer, a photo detector, for laser detection experiments and a French supplied laser corner reflector. The lander and rover together weighed 1,814 kilograms. Luna 21 was launched on board a Proton K Block D carrier rocket on January 8, 1973. The launcher put the spacecraft into Earth parking orbit, followed by translunar injection. On January 12, 1973, Luna 21 was braked into a 90 by 100 kilometer orbit around the moon. On 13 and 14 January, the Paralune was lowered to 16 kilometers altitude. On 15 January, after 40 orbits, the braking rocket was fired at 16 kilometers altitude and the craft went into a freefall. At an altitude of 750 meters, the main thrusters began firing, slowing the fall until a height of 22 meters was reached. At this point, the main thrusters shut down and the secondary thrusters ignited, slowing the fall until the lander was 1.5 meters above the surface where the engine was cut off. Luna 21 landed in Le Manier, crater at 25.99 degrees north and 30.4 degrees east. 
the lander carried a bass relief of linen and the Soviet coat of arms. After landing on January 16, 1973, the Lanakhod-2 took TV images of the surrounding area, then rolled down a ramp to the surface and took pictures of the Luna 21 lander and landing site. It then stopped and charged batteries until January 18th. It took more images of the lander and landing site and then set out over the moon. The rover would run during the lunar day, stopping occasionally to recharge its batteries via the solar panels. At night, the rover would hibernate until the next sunrise, heated by the radioactive source. The Nakhod 2 operated for about four months and it covered 37 kilometers of terrain, including hilly upland areas and reels, and sent back 86 panoramic images and over 80,000 TV pictures. Many mechanical tests of the surface, laser ranging measurements, and other experiments were completed during this time. On April 20, 1973, Lanakhod 2 drove into a small crater. When it drove back out, it did not close the lid. Apparently, the lid scraped the wall of the crater and deposited dust on its inner surface. The lid was closed at the end of the lunar day, and the soil in the lid was dumped into the interior of the rover. When the lid was opened for the next lunar day, the dust on the radiator caused the rover to overheat and on May 10th, communications ceased. On June 4th, it was announced that the program was completed. The Lanakhod laser retro reflector is still used by Earth-based stations for laser ranging. Lanakhod 2 is located at 25.8 degrees north by 30.9 degrees east. And finally we have Explorer 49. The Radio Astronomy Explorer B mission, also known as Explorer 49, was the second of a pair of Radio Astronomy Explorer satellites. It was placed into lunar orbit to provide radio astronomical measurements of the planets, the sun, and the galaxy over the frequency range of 25 kilohertz to 13.1 megahertz. The equipment for conducting experiments consisted of two Ryle von Berg radiometers, which had nine channels each, three swept frequency burst receivers, which had 32 channels each, and an impedance probe for calibration. The experiment antenna package was made of beryllium copper, and it consisted of a very long traveling wave antenna forming an X configuration. A 229-meter upper V antenna pointed away from the moon. A 229-meter lower V antenna pointed toward the moon. And finally, a 37-meter dipole antenna parallel to the lunar surface. 
There was also a 129-meter boron liberation damper boom system used to damp out any spacecraft oscillations about the equilibrium position. Specifically, the experiments conducted were 1. Galactic Studies Experiment 2. Sporadic Low-Frequency Solar Radio Burst Experiment 3. Sporadic Jovian Burst Experiment 4. Radio Emissions from Terrestrial Magnetosphere Experiment and 5. Cosmic Source Observation Experiment. The principal investigator for all the experiments was Dr. Robert G. Stone. The spacecraft body was constructed of aluminum and aluminum honeycomb. It had a mass of 328 kilograms at launch and 200 kilograms in lunar orbit. It was a truncated cylinder, 92 centimeters in diameter and approximately 79 centimeters high with four fixed solar panels. The solar arrays were NP solar cells generating 25 watts and powering nickel-cadmium batteries. The maneuvering system consisted of a hydrazine velocity correction package, a cold gas attitude control system, and a solid fuel lunar insertion motor. Data were returned to the Earth via either a low-power UHF transmitter in real-time or stored in an onboard tape recorder and transmitted to Earth via a high-powered ultra-high-frequency transmitter at 400 MHz. Two tape recorders provided backup storage. A very high-frequency transmitter served primarily for range and range rate measurement and as a backup. Commands were received on a VHF 148 MHz receiver, which also was a part of the range and range rate system. Spacecraft attitude was determined by 1. A solar aspect system, 2. A horizon sensor system, and 3. A panoramic attitude sensor system, and was accurate to 1 degree. The spacecraft was gravity gradient oriented, z-axis parallel to local vertical. Explorer 49 was launched after the termination of the Apollo program in 1972, and although it did not examine the moon directly, it became the last American lunar orbital mission until the launch of the Clementine spacecraft in 1994. Explorer 49 was launched on June 10, 1973 from Cape Canaveral by a Delta Thor carrier rocket from Launch Complex 17B. Explorer 49 was placed into lunar orbit so that radio waves from Earth would not be as big of an interference as they were for Explorer 38. After launch on a direct ascent trajectory to the moon, and, after one mid-course correction, Explorer 49 was placed into lunar orbit on June 15, 1973, after a 20-second firing of a solid Apogee kick motor. 
Explorer 49 began operations on June 20th, 1973. Initially, only the 37-meter dipole antenna was deployed, during which the spacecraft was operated in a 4-RPM spin-stabilized mode with the spin axis in the ecliptic plane normal to the spacecraft's sunline. After three weeks, the dipole booms were retracted, the spacecraft was reoriented, and the long V antennas and liberation damper were extended, and the dipole was deployed. The lower V antenna was initially extended to 183 meters during the first 16 months of flight and was extended to its full 229 meter length in November of 1974. Once its antennas were deployed, the spacecraft became the largest human-made object to orbit the moon to date. NASA announced the completion of the mission in June 1975, and in August 1977, lost contact with Explorer 49. It is assumed the orbiter crashed sometime after this. from the foothills of North Carolina on the shores of the mighty Yadkin River. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 385 of the Space Rocket History Podcast, entitled Copernicus, SAS-2, Venera 8, Luna 20 and 21, and Explorer 49. I hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. The 2022 donors page is up to date, so please go by the website spacerockethistory.com to make sure your name is there at the correct level with the correct longevity emoji. If there is a problem, please don't hesitate to let us know by emailing spacerockethistory at gmail.com. If you'd like to donate by mail, which works great for me, please use my new permanent address, which has been active for about eight months now. If you'd don't know what that is, please email me and I will give it to you. Believe it or not, my Twitter handle is working again. Of course, I lost over 1,100 followers during the hacking of the account, but it's back up again. My handle is the same as it used to be, at Space Rocket Hist. So please follow if you can. I'm up to 17 followers now. <laughs> I appreciate you, 17. I appreciate it a lot. Our next episode should appear by April 7th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 205 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. If you are using Google Podcast, you have to type in the whole name of the podcast, Space Rocket History Archive, or the search engine won't find it. Google made some changes. Who knows why? And by the way, if you began the emoji maneuver last year, now's an excellent time to complete it. Of course, I had a few afterthoughts on this episode. 
All the pictures for these spacecraft that I discussed are on the homepage at spacerockethistory.com. And, of course, I would like to apologize for my mispronunciation of words that I should probably know how to pronounce correctly. <laughs> I want to shout out to the UK, where my second largest audience is, for the collaboration on Copernicus. Venera 8 really impressed me as it was able to soft land on Venus, take pictures and readings on the way down and on the surface, and last for 63 minutes under that 90 atmospheres of pressure and 470 degrees C temperature. Do you think we'll ever be able to land people there? And would we want to? I have read that all the action is actually in the clouds. And speaking of clouds, wasn't it interesting that the Venusian clouds end at high altitude and then it's relatively clear to the surface? Anyway, Venera 8, pretty impressive, especially for the early 1970s. You don't hear much about Explorer 49, but wasn't it interesting they put it in lunar orbit to limit interference from the Earth? And when the antennas were extended, it was the largest spacecraft to orbit the moon to date. And the last lunar orbiter the U.S. put out there until 1994. Well, we have finished the uncrewed spacecraft for 1972, and I got a couple in for 1973. So we're officially into 1973. And that means... Next episode begins Skylab. I'm going to start at the beginning and give you the history of Skylab. And I know several of you are interested in the manned orbiting laboratory, which is part of that history. So, I'm really looking forward to this. And as I am sure many of you are too, judging from the amount of email I have gotten on the subject. <laughs> so, call your friends. Call your enemies. Skylab begins on April 7th with episode 386. For those still interested in the house progress, they have finally trimmed out the front window. They have installed the carpet. The electrical is complete. The HVAC is complete. The big showstopper, the garage door, is installed. But the sheetrock crew didn't cut a hole for the garage door button that you use to open and close the door for the wire to come out. They didn't cut a hole for the wire to come out. <laughs> they just covered the wiring up for it. Also, <laughs> the cord for the motor on the garage door was too short to reach the outlet, which, of course, can be easily solved with an extension cord. That's not a biggie at all. But for right now, we have to operate the door manually. Once again... They moved our settlement day. It was on March 4th, then March 18th, and now March 25th. So it is possible we will get to move in next week. And that is your house update. Over the last two weeks, I got very nervous about contributions. We didn't receive any until very late. And we do have a huge shortfall this year so far so it made me wonder if a lot of you just don't really enjoy the uncrewed missions 
Anyway, we will be on Skylab next time. Hopefully the funding will increase some. For those of you who did contribute, it means the world to us, and we would like to thank Christopher L. from Australia, who donated at the Mercury level and earned an alien emoji. Spence S. pledged on Patreon at the Gemini level. Peter L. pledged on Patreon at the Mercury level. Our total Patreon donors have now reached 253, with a goal of 300 by the end of 2022. Our total donors for 2022 have reached 298, with an overall goal of 500 for the year. So, if you're enjoying the podcast that has been running over nine years without commercial interruptions, and you can afford it, please consider going to the homepage at Space Rocket History and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Now, here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, SRH friends. Good news! Our two daughters have moved into their new homes with us at the farm. While I am still in the camper, it does bring me immeasurable joy to see the grandchildren outside playing in the wide open space and fresh air. Our oldest grandson said it feels awesome to finally be up here. Oh, so very thankful they are here. Now for the drawing. The winner will have the choice of a Space Rocket History Magnet, or the Rare and Beautiful SRH Archive Magnet, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers, or a genuine NASA meatball sticker. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Peter Moore. Peter Moore, if you would email us, spacerockethistory at gmail.com, tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks. To all 298 of you who have contributed thus far in 2022. My sources for this episode were daviddarling.info, the website, NASA, Gunter's Space Page, Encyclopedia Britannica, The Pictorial History of World Spacecraft by Bill Yin, Rockets and Missiles by Bill Gustin, The Encyclopedia of U.S. Spacecraft by Bill Yin, Raise Space under a Creative Commons Attribution License, Reuse Allowed, and Wikipedia. That's all we have for this episode. I'll try to have episode 386 posted by April 7th, 2022. So long for now.